if you're trying to change your design culture and you're not willing to put a little bit of skin in the game, skin being some social and political capital, it's going to be really hard. It's like asking for things to change for free with no pain. I just don't think that exists. Welcome to Deep Dives. My name is Rid, and this is where we go deep with the best designers so that you can learn from their journey and apply it to your own career. Today, I'm talking with Brian Lovin, who's the founder of Campsite, a new tool to help designers share and collaborate on work in progress. So this conversation looks at a lot of the traits of the top design cultures, and we even get into specific strategies that you can use to share and get feedback on your work. But first, I wanted to drill into Brian's journey as a two-time design founder to learn a little bit more about what it was like leaving GitHub and starting his new company, Campsite. So Campsite started as a bug in my brain many, many years ago, uh, really at Facebook, just thinking about what it feels like to be on a team where there's a culture of sharing early, sharing often. There's some social mechanics at play inside of Facebook where it was fun to share work and get lots of people to look at it and get people higher up in the organization to look at it. And this planted this bug in my brain back in 2016 that there's a different way for design teams to function. And ever since Facebook, I've just been looking for that same way. So I started a company and then I ended up at GitHub and at GitHub, a uh, fully distributed team and also through the height of COVID and the pandemic and work from home, I just looked around at design teams siloed into Slack channels and literally not knowing what anybody else is working on. I would I would constantly be messaging people at GitHub like, what's new? Show me pixels. What have you made? Like, what is your team going to ship next? And just getting those answers was like pulling teeth. And uh, the management team at GitHub did a lot of work to try and share these updates to bring people along for the ride. And it was super manual, tedious, time consuming. I don't know that anybody really liked it. I don't even know that that many people looked at the ensuing artifact. So anyways, there I was at, at GitHub, knowing that there's a better way to collaborate as a design team and feeling like, ah, we haven't figured it out. I talked to a lot of other designers and design teams that haven't figured it out. I bet I can solve that problem. Uh, and so once that bug starts to creep back up, uh, for me, it was, it was like a nights and weekends bug, right? Like, I'm going to just start prototyping an app and show it to some people and see if it feels right. Uh, the nights and weekends led to showing it to people who were really excited and wanted to use it and wanted to try it. And, uh, you know, I think when you're starting something new, there's always the question of, do you just quit and go full time? Do you try and de-risk it? For me, I, I did try to de-risk and sort of gradient my way into leaving GitHub. And really that was only possible because I had really good managers at GitHub or specifically my manager was incredibly supportive and I basically negotiated a leave of absence and I took three months to just work full-time on campsite and during that three months it was full steam ahead to just try and figure out if this is a thing that could work at the end of the three months I had built some confidence I had conviction like yeah there's something here I have people using it I have people paying for it I'm just going to go. And I mean, it, it's not a fun message to send to your manager. Like, hey, thanks for all of the time you put into helping me get a leave of absence. I'm out. Um, See ya. But I think there was some implicit uh, 
well, actually pretty explicit understanding that this was a, a possible outcome. So anyways, that was sort of my path to de-risking. I'd been thinking about it for a long time. Uh, nights and weekends, unpaid leave of absence, a little bit risky, but not the end of the world. And then finally, at the end of that, had enough conviction to go full-time. Can you talk a little bit more about that three-month period? Like, where were you at at the beginning of it? And then kind of how'd you know where to go from there? And where'd you get to at the end of the three-month period that kind of crossed you over that confidence line where you felt like you knew you could make the jump? It's funny because you start out the three months with some goal in mind, which for me was I just wanted paying customers. And towards the end, you're like, actually, it's just really hard to get paying customers. So you get to <laughs> be a little bit fuzzy there. I had paying customers, but I was, I don't know. I think I was just setting really abstract goals. Like I want $10,000 in revenue, just basically making numbers up. I can't even remember at this point. At the beginning of the three months, I think I had a prototype and people interested in it. And I might've had like a landing page wait list with companies who had signed up. And the name of the game through the three months was, I mean, it was just a grind, but talk to customers, build things, show those things to the same customers, rinse and repeat. And I would basically get into a loop where I think it was Monday, Tuesday, talk to customers, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, build. And then rinse and repeat the next week. And so after three months of that, like you can get a lot done. And by the end of three months, I had customers. There were people paying for it. I don't know if I hit the any sort of revenue goal, but it was like promising enough. You know, you're like, it didn't quite hit the goal, but there's a there's a line that's going up and to the right here that, that feels good. You mentioned this briefly in the beginning, but I'm just going to kind of hit on it for people who are not aware. This isn't your first rodeo. You've started up before. You actually started a company called Spectrum, sold that to GitHub, which is how you ended up at GitHub. And right. that's now powering their like developer community forums. So you have this history of experience. You've learned a lot of lessons. My question is, what are you doing differently this time with Campsite than you did with Spectrum? Well, first I should correct the record. Spectrum isn't really powering anything at GitHub. Spectrum is actually shut down. But I like to think it was maybe the, the spiritual the precursor yeah, yeah. to discussions. I don't know. There's probably... Powering doesn't that, mean, need to mean APIs. The it's, code it's, is gone. Have, Spectrum yeah, you gotta have, yeah, yeah. you got to have the foundation. Which, by the way, is a whole separate thing that was interesting about Spectrum is that it is deleted. It is hmm. gone from the internet. And that's a weird feeling to have worked on something for a long time. And I don't know, I guess you have the Wayback Machine and maybe some old screenshots on, on your hard drive, but it's gone, man. Talk more about that. I don't want to skip it yet. <laughs> I'll tell the story that when we joined GitHub, we had on the order of magnitude of like tens of thousands of active users on the, the app. Not huge, but not bad. Like people were using yeah, the product. It's legit. It was growing a little bit. I was using the product. Yeah. Yeah. We had good communities on there. I think we had the, the Figma community was on there. We had a big framer presence. We had a big React presence. Like there was folks on there using it. So we joined, we were on the order of tens of thousands. And I don't know that we really found our footing internally at GitHub. Uh, we ended up not getting to invest that much in the Spectrum product in that first year. But I checked back in on the analytics after a year and we were in like the hundreds of thousands of users. Hmm. So zero product work 
zero new features and the app just grew like crazy. And a lot of that's because we've been planting these seeds that Spectrum would be um, like the search indexable alternative to a Slack community or a Discord community, right? Like that search indexability led to a lot of growth without us really doing anything. So in hindsight, I don't know, like maybe we were on the cusp of something more interesting. So it's always this tension, I think, in the early stages of like, how long do you keep pursuing an idea before you quit? And for me, like joining GitHub was quitting, right? Like we stopped working on Spectrum. And that's just always hard. It's a hard call to make in the moment. Like when you're in the weeds, it feels like everything is fighting against you. It feels like the odds of failure are high. Failure is right around the corner. But then you get this one year period where you get to look back at some graph and you're like, oh shit, like things were actually kind of working. Um, mm -hmm. So you just don't know in the moment. I'm curious, do you feel that same failures right around the corner right now? With oh yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Every day, every day. It's funny. <laughs> I feel like the startup mode is just this like uh, spiraling outward uh from a time point of view, just recursion of highs, lows, and stresses. Like literally every day it feels like you're failing at something. And then every week there's sort of like some slightly broader theme that you're failing at. And every month is some slightly broader theme that you're failing at all the way out, you know, and then I'm now like in year two. It's like, oh man, time is flying. <laughs> uh, so yeah, definitely feels like things uh, could fail. I mean, we're still small. All right, now let's return. So yeah. with all of these experiences and thoughts and emotions, how does it impact the way that you're currently approaching campsite? Hmm. So one of the, the big differences now is that we actually have a team at campsite. With Spectrum, it was just the three co-founders. So I'm getting to have a little bit of a different experience there. Uh, I think we're able to move a little bit faster. We just have more horsepower behind the machine that is campsite. I think it's so hard because when you're in the weeds, every decision you make is made for a logical reason, right? Like I look back at some of the mistakes we made at Spectrum and in the moment, it was like the most logical decision we could have made. I don't know how you could have avoided that. And so I think when I think about campsite now it's like you don't really know what's going to be a mistake until later so the way i think about it is as long as we are building fast learning fast and not getting precious about any of the things that we've tried uh, like we're pretty willing to cut features delete things uh, try and bring customers along for the ride as we do that but we're just not precious about the thing that we've built um, I don't know that we were ever super precious about things on Spectrum, but I think there was definitely a hesitation to cut features. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening if you can't cut features is you just, the the surface area of your product just starts to sprawl, even, even for a small startup, right? It's just like more pages, components, flows, things to maintain, more bug reports, which leads to more stress support cues and all this kind of stuff. 
when really like if you just cut the features that nobody actually cared about, your life would be a lot easier. So if I think about Spectrum, we probably didn't cut enough. Campsite, we're cutting quite a lot and we're not shy about doing that. Can you share yeah, an example yeah. or two of just like, yeah, what, what's a feature that you cut that maybe you would have been a little bit more precious about the first time around? One of the, the things that we cut recently was we built an integration with Linear and GitHub where you could create linear issues and GitHub issues from a post on campsite. And we heard this from customers. People told us they wanted it. They're like, while I'm giving design feedback to somebody, wouldn't it be nice if I could just spin up issues and assign those to the engineers on my team? And even internally, we were like, yeah, that sounds great for us too. Like we're using campsite all the time. We use linear to create issues. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just create our own issues while we're using campsite? So we put a lot of time and energy into building these integrations with lots of syncing and like keeping all of the fields up to date so that you can know what's opened and closed and canceled. Uh, I don't know. There's like a lot of edge cases in those APIs of figuring out how to connect your organization, making sure people have the right permissions to create all this stuff, put all this energy in and uh, nobody used it. <laughs> like we looked at the numbers of issues created and it was like a handful. So we're like, okay, let's take another design pass at this. It was a little bit buried in a menu. You had to go through one of those three dot overflow menus, create an issue. We're like, all right, let's lift that out onto the campsite interface so that on every post, there's a call to action, a button to create a new issue. So we did that. Nobody used it. We saw the number of teams connecting to GitHub and connecting to linear going up, but nobody actually created issues. So for us, we're like, this is a lot of overhead for us to maintain. Everything added to an interface dilutes everything else. And so we cut it. Uh, we have, of course, all of the version history if we ever wanted to restore any of that functionality. But we just deleted it. And uh, zero people complained. Luckily, like nobody nice. used that feature. So zero people complained. And we uh, were able to simplify the interface. Maybe someday we bring it back. But we'll be a little bit more cautious when we do. I think in the, the user research, the understanding side, when people tell you they want something, doesn't always mean they want it. And that's that's like the hard thing to tease apart, right? There's just always a mismatch between stated and, and actual preferences. And I think the good designers and good researchers will be able to tease that out. Obviously, mistakes will be made as we made in this case. But yeah, that's an example of something that we've, we've cut and I think it's worked out fine. I think there's probably a lot of people listening to this that are designers and they have that idea that's maybe the bug in their brain or maybe they just have this desire to take some steps toward owning their own thing instead of just selling their time for money. And you know, you've been in this seat for quite a while now. So are there other pieces of advice you have or uh, other ways that designers can prepare to be founders to avoid some of those challenges that you faced either with Spectrum or now with Campsite? I used to think everybody should start a company because I've always found it so valuable. Like my learning experience at Spectrum accelerated my career, both from a design standpoint, from a programming standpoint, from just a product thinking standpoint, super valuable. So I'm like, oh yeah, everybody should do this. I've kind of come around the other side of that one. I'm not sure everybody should. What I think everybody should do if they're at least somewhat interested in taking that path is start a side project and maintain it for like three months. Like see if you can do that. 
I think most people can't. And that's not because most people are bad or lazy or anything like that. It's like, I don't know. I've done this a million times. You know, you write the first blog post on your website and you're like, I'm starting a new writing habit. I'm going to be posting (laughs) weekly. Subscribe to my newsletter. And then crickets, right? Like no posts after that. It's just hard to, to do something over and over again for an extended period of time. And that's kind of the startup game is just like failing every day over and over and over again until hopefully you're not failing. And so I recommend people just start with a side project. Can you talk a little bit about staff design then? Like that was a side project of yours. Was that where you thought you were going to end it? Or was there this decision where you're like, you know what, this isn't something that I want to be consistent on? Like, how do you think about that project? Yeah, so staff design was an interview series. I did eight interviews with uh, high-level individual contributors, mostly just trying to answer my own questions about, like, what is career progression for a designer who doesn't want to be a manager? It had always been a thing that bugged me. I could never figure it out. I'd been thinking about it since my time at Facebook. And when I started that project, I knew that it was going to be a small, compact, standalone artifact. I didn't want another design details. I didn't want to do a weekly interview. So I did eight interviews and published them. And I feel like I scratched my own itch and hopefully scratched the itch for other people that had been wondering the same question. The thing that was tempting about staff design is I think there's a way to extend that series. Like I think you could do like another season of eight interviews, like maybe interview managers, do another season interview design leaders. We could probably talk to illustrators, motion designers, brand designers, and get a different lens on this like IC career progression. So that was always interesting, but I don't know. I interviewed people for years and years and years, and it's just a lot of work. And so that staff design was really just a personal thing. I knew knew it would be standalone, and I didn't have any motivation to keep going. A fun fact about staff design, which I actually didn't really plan on talking about, is the way that you unveiled who you were going to write about was like the direct influence for how I originally unveiled the people behind Oh, Dive. cool. Yeah. Because cool. you had the little pixelated faces. And yeah. I was like, man, that is cool. <laughs> Copy, paste. <laughs> it was, those were fun because people actually like spent time figuring out who the people were going to be. Oh, some yeah. Po- totally. Some people have like a recognizable silhouette, you know, in their Twitter photo or something. Yeah, I tried to do Joey Banks, and everyone immediately figured out because it's like at the forty-five <laughs> I mean, degree he's angle got the with profile. the glasses, and I was like, yeah, all right, yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so I like to transition a little bit because mm-hmm. you know you have just a lot of thoughts and insight on team process and how people work, and I'd like to actually start with your process at Campsite and like your vision for a design culture, because you have these, you know, this background at like robust, mature design orgs at GitHub and and Facebook. And you're talking to all these teams, you're learning how they work. And now you kind of get this blank slate handed to you a little bit. So when you look into the future, even what are some of the defining characteristics that you hope to instill as far as how design operates at Campsite? There's sort of three points that come to mind for me. And there, there were these things that just emerged through the way that we worked and we talked about them and noticed them. And people pointed out that, hey, this is actually kind of interesting. Not every company actually works this way. So the first is 
everybody on the team calls their shot. I know this sounds obvious, but actually a lot of people don't do this, which is say what you're going to do and then do it. A lot of people, there's no accountability to even say what you're going to do. It's like, cool, another week, just like just hacking on this project, yeah. just going to make progress on it, going to work on this design. Like what, what work are you going to get done? So the way that we've manifested that at campsite, it's kind of gone through a few iterations. What we do now is we do a Monday kickoff and we just talk about what we want to get done this week. Friday, we recap and I don't know, check in. How did it go? What did we miss? What's on deck for next week? And then every day we just post one very short bullet point list of things in Slack. We have a daily updates channel and it's bullet points of things you want to get done that day. And that has been awesome. It's super helpful just to like say what you're going to do and force yourself to be specific about it. Right. I think there's a lot of times at GitHub where you'd start the week and be like, yeah, I'm just going to work on this project, but it's so abstract. Like, what do you want to get done? What problem do you want to solve? What do you want to end the week having learned or figured out or completed? So being really specific about calling your shot and calling your shot in front of your peers, right? Like we're not writing this in our private journals. Like we're telling everybody else, this is what I'm going to get done. So I like that. I guess you'd call this like a stand-up culture, but be like that flows into all of our communication. We post throughout the day, throughout the week in campsite as we're making progress towards those goals. We bring everybody along for the ride. So that's the first point. The second point is we call it everybody shovels snow, which is basically saying like, you gotta do the shitty grunt work sometimes. And I think this is true for engineers a lot, but also for designers too. Like, you know what? It sucks, but you gotta like tidy up your files if other people are gonna be in them. You gotta go through and like make sure your, I don't know, colors are correct and your types is correct and like go through what the preview deployment looks like and actually bug hunt and actually look for misaligned things. It's grunt work. It's not very fun. Hopefully AI replaces it all someday. But we call this shoveling snow. Uh, A third thing, this comes from a blog post and really just rallies around this phrase called radiating intent. I think radiating intent is very similar to calling your shot. But it's more about doing than asking permission. It's like, I am going to do this thing. Speak up if you don't want me to do it versus, hey, can I please do this thing? And that subtle shift is, I think, what helps great teams move really, really fast. You do by default, and people speak up only when they notice something that's like really going to go off the rails or something that's really needs more conversation, but just doing by default. So we call that radiating intent. I think it comes through in your release notes too. Like, y'all ship every single week. It seems, at least from the outside, my perspective Almost is, every week. Almost every week. Eh, we'll call it every week. <laughs> there seems to be a tempo at mm-hmm. Campsite that I appreciate. I think one of the problems with being a design founder is there's this temptation to just only care about the design. To basically like care more about the design part of the design founder title than the founder part, which yeah. is like all of the other boring crap, like starting a company and paying your taxes and running payroll and all that kind of stuff. This is a complicated one because I feel like there's all these interviews coming out now, like obviously Linear and and Kari has been doing some interviews talking about craft and beauty, and I nod along to all of those things. 
but Linear has built a really great business. I think there's so many examples of apps where the founder also cared about craft and quality and design and beauty. And we don't use any of those apps anymore. Yep. So I see as a design founder and looking around to the other design founders, I do worry about making sure that I'm not over investing in the craft and quality because as a designer, it's my job to like hold the line and instead make sure we're actually building a sustainable business, closing sales, investing in marketing and communications and making sure that the company is running smoothly internally behind the scenes, administratively, all that boring snow shoveling crap, you know? How do you find that line though? Because I think your situation is unique because you're not building this like commercial real estate app where designing for other designers to get the likes on Twitter would have absolutely no value. Like that yeah. is your target market in some ways. Yeah. And so I could see a world where, Hey, I'm shipping for tech. I'm shipping for people within tech that have taste. This is a competitive advantage that we want to lean into. You've done that a little bit. Like you can't say to yeah. me that you haven't pursued craft to an extent. Oh man, I have spicy takes on this. Obviously it all depends on the stage that your company is at. There's like pre-product market fit, there's growth and beyond. We're in like the early pre-product market fit. We have paying customers, but still figuring out some of the core engagement loops. So red flags would be designing your own custom icons. Red flags would be rebranding. Red flags would be designing your own typeface. Let's talk about your website a little bit. Because I think that I could have seen a world where you set a bar maybe similar to what Diagram did, where they were maybe even an earlier stage as a company or similar, similar stage, where they said, you know what, we're going to try to break the internet. Did you have that temptation? Zero temptation. I think the Diagram landing page is gorgeous. I think the linear landing page is gorgeous, but I'm honestly so burned out with modern landing pages and what people think of as good design. There is an obsession with bento grids where every box has a micro interaction that is insane. And it's yeah. insane because it gets likes on Twitter. So people keep doing it because it feels good to get likes on Twitter. Every landing page is over invested in what's the micro interaction scroll animation we can add here instead of how do we explain what our product does really clearly? I'm not saying the campsite landing page is good. We're gonna redo it soon. We could do a way better job of telling the story, but I focused on like, there is a series of words that I want you to read as you scroll down the page and the, the visuals are accompanying. Yeah, you might actually linger on those for a second, but I want you to leave the landing page understanding what our product does and if it's gonna be useful for your team. I'm tired of landing pages where I scroll through the whole thing. Oh, it's pretty. I like screenshot it. I'm like, oh, that was a nice interaction. That was a cool, yeah, that was nice. I should tweet that and get some likes. And I get to the bottom of the page. I'm like, I have no clue what this yeah. product does. We're gonna unlock creative collaboration for your AI generated team workspace. Like what? Yeah. <laughs> Just tell like, me what you do. Like, like the bento grid where you have these ridiculously robust, beautiful animations. And then you have like 
18 point font with a title underneath this like really big graphic yeah. and then like 14 point font with like 60% opacity underneath yeah. it. And I can't even read the text. I don't see any text. I scroll it and I don't even see a single line of text. Yeah. I think we've gone too far. I think we'll pull back, but we are definitely in the flashy era of landing page design. And Hey, if you do that and you can communicate really well, what your product does more power to you. If you're in a pre-product market fit startup and you spent three months doing that, you wasted your time. And so that's where we are. Like someday we will have a really flashy, gorgeous landing page. We're going to have the perfect brand. Just not now. Right now, like let's get people in the door and make sure the product actually works for them. So that means, yeah, I think we did the current landing page in 24 hours, which maybe it shows. I don't know. Maybe people look at that and they're like, yeah, I think it's I think it's fine, but that's like the level of investment we wanted to put in right now. Cause we're just all in on talking to customers and building the product. You've mentioned this pre product market fit era a couple times now. What are the biggest questions that you're trying to answer or de-risk right now at campsite? Holy shit. What we're trying to figure out right now is how do you create a space where designers can share things at the right time with the right people, get the right feedback. And there's a very interesting paradox that happens, which is as campsite becomes more successful within a company, the harder it becomes to use. So here's what I mean. Imagine you're a five person design team and you spin up campsite for five people. The five of you start posting. Everyone kind of knows what everybody's working on. There's a lot of shared trust, a lot of shared context. So you can just post whatever you want. It could be a scribble. It could be a lo-fi mock. It could just be like some crappy screenshots, not framed, whatever. And you're just sharing and having fun, right? Then one day you're like, hey, I just uploaded something that I, I need to show it to an engineer. Or I'm going to show it to my PM. Oh, hey, campsite has like free viewers and commenters. I'm going to like add them in and they can come and view and comment on this thing. Rinse and repeat. And all of a sudden you have not just your five person design team, but you have your five person design team plus an unknown number of viewers and commenters who could be anyone from the engineer that you work with every day to the CEO of the company. When that happens, you no longer have a group with shared context as much shared trust. And by the way, we're talking about like a five person design team. Imagine this is like a 500 person design team. It gets nuts, right? And so what happens is people get really anxious about posting. I think designers right now, I think this has been exacerbated by remote work, are really anxious to show work in progress. There's a lot of downside to showing work that might be considered unpolished or low quality. Even if it's part of the process of getting to high quality, just having posted something that's low quality can be risky depending on the culture of the organization. So what are we trying to figure out? How do we actually help companies make that transition from being a place where the design team with a lot of shared trust can be posting, bring people along for the ride, having a lot of fun to also pulling in people from other functions in the organization while keeping anxiety low. That is a really hard problem, but I think that's like the key problem that's the top on top of our minds right now is the more embedded campsite becomes within an organization, the scarier it can become to use. Yeah. I and mean, obviously you're having a lot of conversations around these topics and learning from the different teams. 
I think it's easy to think about user research as a way to unearth a lot of the core problems to solve and some of which you've been talking about already. I also think that it's a great way to develop this understanding of what good looks like. So maybe we can even flip it a little bit. Like when you talk to this company where you're like, man, you know, that's, that's a healthy design culture. They're doing things the right way when it comes to sourcing feedback and collaborating and, and sharing early and often. What are the things that you observe in these teams that are healthy that you think other design teams can emulate? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to some of the, the phrases that we've been using, which is shared trust, shared context. If you can have a design organization that says, hey, it's okay to share a crappy screenshot of early work in progress because we know we're all on the same page that that by sharing that, it is the only way to get to the, the actually good stuff, right? Like we got to work through all the bad ideas before we get to the good ideas. If you have a culture that understands that, you're good. You're like, this will work just fine. To create that culture, if you don't already have it, that's tough. And it depends on like how strong design presence is within an organization. Do you have a strong design leader? Is there a design leader who can sort of shield the organization from bad feedback from non-design stakeholders? Like one thing I've noticed talking to a lot of design teams over the last year this isn't universal, but I've noticed an increasing anxiety among design leaders to tell people what to do. For example, we talk to a lot of heads of design, design managers, directors. They come to us, they're like, I need people on my team to share more work in progress. We need a better culture of sharing. We need more visibility into the projects and the status. Can Campsite solve that for us? I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's give it a try. Like roll it out to your team and ask people to, to start sharing work in progress. They're like, Oh, I don't want to ask people to share work in progress. Why not? Well, you know, like it's social capital, it's political capital. I want people to like me. I don't want to force people to do anything. Like these are things that design managers and directors are telling us, right? They don't want to impose a process on their team, even if it's a process that they want, that they think will lead to a better outcome for their design culture. And that's a really challenging kind of situation for us to be in, right? Like we can build the tool that we hope will unlock some of that culture, but ultimately if a design manager isn't willing to put a little skin in the game and say like, hey, this is a thing we do now, we share work in progress, then it probably won't stick. So I don't know. I think a lot of the work that we do right now is, well, we coach managers and directors and heads of design and like walk them through that process. Like you might have a little bit of a learning curve as you try to actually change the culture of your design team. And then of course on the product side is like, how can we actually make that as easy and fun as possible? Like this should feel fun for individual contributors to you. It should feel rewarding to share an update. You should feel motivated when your, your peers see it. You should feel like every time you share and ask for feedback, you get good feedback from the people that you care about. Like those are some of the things that we can help with on the product side. But at the very start, if you're trying to change your design culture and you're not willing to put a little bit of skin in the game, skin being some social and political capital, it's going to be really hard. It's like asking for things to change for free with no pain. I just don't think that exists. Yeah. 
when we talked a little bit about the tooling part and the culture part, there's also a good bit of skill involved from the designer themselves. Like learning how to get good feedback is a skill that we improve over years of practice and all of the bad experiences. And I think the most common piece of advice you would hear when you ask someone this question is like, well, be specific about the type of feedback that you're looking for. I want to go beyond that though. What are some of the ways that you think designers can more effectively share their ideas in a way that promotes a healthy feedback culture? The problem is queuing up the context so that the people who are viewing that can understand the problem that you're working on, the objectives that you're trying to find, uh, reach. Like this is, I think the problem with long running design critiques is you might start with a small group. Everybody knows what everybody's working on. Uh, all of a sudden somebody new joins the company, they show up to critique and it's like, oh my God, we've got to replay like months of conversations to get this person up to speed. So that's part of what we think about is like, how do you, how do you create a space where people can figure out that context on their own, get ramped up? So that's one part. It's just the context setting side. And I think this is just the painful part of scaling a design organization. Eventually not everybody has that same context. People are joining the team. You got to ramp them up. And I think it does make design critique noisier or just takes more time to get through any specific person's work, you know, cause they have to do so much context setting, but being specific about what you want feedback on, I would even just add in the opposite, which is being specific about the feedback you don't want. Right. I think this is, uh, harder to do. Uh, but like when you post something, really think about what you don't want feedback on. I don't want you to look at this half of the design. I don't want comments on these icons. Like I know this color is wrong. Please don't talk about it, but it does take time from the person who's doing the sharing to really think about what I want feedback on. Who do I want feedback from? Have I set context appropriately? Or is it possible to get context ahead of time before you leave a comment? And then what do I not want feedback on? That is like a pretty good place to start. I don't think it's rocket science to improve the way that people give and receive feedback here. But there's also like no magic. Oh, but just do this one thing. Like, nope, you got to like communicate effectively. You probably need to share more than you're already sharing, which will make it easier to, to bring people along for the ride. A thing that I think about a lot is you don't really read every single tweet on Twitter you don't really read every single post on LinkedIn, but when you scroll those feed like products, you are like collecting these little breadcrumbs in the back of your head of like, oh, this person's doing this thing. Oh, this person's thinking of this thing. Oh, this person's mad about this topic. Oh, this person like just moved or switched jobs, right? Like you build up these little breadcrumbs and then the next time you encounter them in the real world, you're like, oh yeah, like you posted a month ago about this thing. Like, how's it going, right? It's not like you, studied and read and commented on every little thing, but you built up these breadcrumbs. I think teams that use campsite in that way can be really effective. It can feel weird at first to, to think of sharing design updates, like sharing a tweet, like, Hey, maybe I don't need a million comments on this. I don't need you to treat it like a final mock. It can just scroll away in the feed. It's ephemeral, but multiply that by everybody's work over 
days and weeks and months. And what you end up is the shared like background collection of breadcrumbs where everyone like kind of knows what people are working on, what problems people are thinking about, what projects are underway. It's a weird way to think about communicating at work in like a Twitter like feed, but that's kind of what campsite does for you. If you actually post to it regularly, you end up building this place where you can scroll. You don't have to read every word of every post but you collect these breadcrumbs that help you understand generally what's happening across an org. I like breadcrumbs. I've also heard you refer to that as ambient awareness, which I Ambi- really like. Yeah. I wrote yeah, that Yeah, down. ambient awareness, yeah. There's so much value in seeing what designers discard even that I think gets lost. And I think about even like my time at Maven and being in Slack. And if I only looked at that Slack, I would miss so much. And yet we're, you know, this young company visual languages are evolving, component systems are evolving, and some of the most valuable inspiration that I've taken from UN Wang's work was not ultimately shipped. It, wasn't, it didn't even make it into a preview build. It's yeah. just this crazy you know, exploration page over here, and I can go over there and be like, oh my gosh, this looks amazing. I've never thought to introduce this kind of an illustrative style, but if I take that, I can put it over here and I actually would ended up copying and pasting something that she didn't use and it worked perfectly for my project. Yeah. And I think the typical ways that we would share work, you would miss a lot yeah. of that. And that's at a startup. <laughs> it's, it's painful to think about how many opportunities for creative serendipity are lost in drafts because people are just oh, well, as a scratch, like, don't have any, like, where would I share this? Like, I know it's not a thing that we're going to build. It's just an idea. Yeah, I'll drop it in a Slack channel that literally nobody will find again after today. I think that's a shame. Um, But yeah, like, why does ambient awareness matter? Because it creates these opportunities to one, like, watch great people work and understand your process. Like, talk about an awesome way to level up a younger design team or, or like set the bar correctly for like, this is how great designers get work done. Yeah, surprise, surprise, step one isn't always pretty hi-fi polished pixels. Like that's a nice model to set for everybody. Two is you're actually gonna spot opportunities to like one plus one equals three situations within a company. This happened to us all the time at Facebook. We had an internal tool, a lot like Campsite called Pixel Cloud. And I would just browse it every day. And I worked on a team called Payments. And all the time, I would see other designers working on stuff related to commerce. And I had no idea about their project. It was something nascent. And I would just reach out and be like, hey, we built stuff that can help you launch your thing faster, right? Like that is one plus one equals three. We just saved that team a ton of time, all because we are just sharing day to day without really, I don't know, overthinking it. But then the third thing, of course, is actually spotting duplicate work. We hear from a lot of teams on Campsite where they're like, yep, we started posting on Campsite and realized two different teams are working on the exact same thing. We've combined efforts and like we've saved a bunch of time and energy. Again, like this, this problem exacerbated by COVID and remote work is that I think there's a low-grade anxiety among designers to share work in progress that causes them to retreat into Slack silos and DMs for understandable reasons, they're tired of getting feedback from the wrong people at the wrong time that disrupts their day. But on the flip side of that, you're duplicating work. You're not able to understand what it takes to get uh, to a final, beautiful, high-quality product. And you're missing out on these opportunities for serendipity at work, which it sounds 
fluffy, but it's a real thing. Like this is how I think great products end up coming together is two people working on two independent, interesting ideas realize that their thing is going to be way better if they just join forces and you need a medium where that work can come out and linger for a while. Yeah. Create that ambient awareness, like build up those breadcrumbs. How do you think about the format that you're sharing this work in? Like if you think about your own design process or maybe what you've observed in other designers that you're working around, how do you know when to reach for that loom video versus that prototype versus that screenshot versus that deck? Hmm. Uh, probably always depends on the audience, right? Like who are you trying to convince of an idea or, or who do you want feedback from, right? Like if you're showing something to executives, you probably need a deck. If you're showing something to PM, you probably need a doc. If you're showing things to another designer, you probably want at least a screenshot, probably a prototype showing something to an engineer, probably a prototype. So I think it all just depends on the, the audience and I don't know. I think that's just a thing that you figure out as a designer that, Hey, I like changed the way I delivered this piece of work to this type of person. I had way better results. We've covered a lot of ground. I want to end by giving you an opportunity to share just like a little glimpse into your vision for campsite and where this is headed. Do you have a thought about like, what does success look like? What does the world look like that you are trying to create? outside of, you know, that next quarter of shipping. At some point you have to have like an abstract vision for why this thing matters. It just reminds me like, it's actually very similar to what motivated me to work at GitHub, which was, I felt like my contributions at GitHub might help developers get that pull request merged 1% faster to production 1% faster, fix that bug 1% faster. And at that low level, at that scale, those micro movements in iteration speed, that has profound consequences on the quality of software that we get to use every day. It means more apps are getting built faster by more kinds of people. So when I think about campsite, same thing, but for design, right? If we can help teams build better designed products, go through that iteration loop faster, get better feedback earlier in the process, deduplicate work, get feedback from, I don't know, people that have the right context, commenting on the right thing, all in one place doesn't require you to be in 10 different tools, juggling that feedback. I think that helps teams ship products faster, hopefully more beautiful products, more usable products. And of course, if you hit any sort of scale, Tweaking that iteration velocity means that everybody else in the world gets to enjoy better, higher quality software earlier. Awesome. Well, if you're listening to this and you haven't played with Campsite yet, go to campsite.design, even just to go through the onboarding process, because it's like one of the only ones that I've actually taken a full screen recording of. It's amazing. <laughs> well done, Brian. Uh, uh, we're going to redo it soon. We're going to redo it. Well, then uh, hurry up. You have to do it today. <laughs> like you have to go through it today before he kills yeah. it. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brian. This has been great. Thanks for having me.